Welcome to the Time for Teaching podcast. I'm Kelly Fox. And I'm Kim Reed. This podcast explores the joys and challenges of teaching in higher education. We are so happy to be here together today. We're having so much fun with this podcast, and we're very pleased to report that we're not alone today. No, we actually have the beloved Kate Quinn with us today. (laughs) We're so happy to have convinced this amazingly talented super badass Kate Quinn to join us today as well. (laughs) So for those of you who haven't had the pleasure of meeting Kate, please allow us to take a minute to introduce her. Since we have the pleasure of working really closely with Kate uh, in the Center for Teaching and Learning, we'd love to share a few fun facts about her. Kate comes from a musical family hailing from St. Margaret's Bay, just outside of Halifax, Nova Scotia. She's a straight shooting, real talking, laugh sparking, hell of a good time, who effortlessly balances between being incredibly sweet, thoughtful and kind, and requiring a full-time sensor present to bleep out her passionate language, and somehow makes it all look and sound like a triumphant orchestral performance. Kate is incredibly intelligent and capable, coming to our rescue more times than we could count, but beyond being an absolute blackboard ninja and literally knowing everything there is to know about our sometimes very complex learning management system, Kate is also an expert on technology in general. Completing her master's of educational technology, she's not afraid to try something new and has an eye for technology that will help the Georgian community without muddying the with tech and software that fails to add value to the teaching and learning experience. It's not just tech for tech. She's a master of tech for purpose. She is for sure going to hate this introduction almost as much as I imagine she hates collegial hugs, but we couldn't pass on the opportunity to sing her praises because she would never in a million years sing her own. Kate Quinn, we worship you and thank you for being here today. Oh my God. Like... (laughs) (laughs) wrote that which one of you did it team effort and that's why you weren't given the notes ahead of time fair enough (laughs) we knew we wouldn't get approval for that fair enough you were right about the hugs and you're also right about the sensor i kelly your editing skills are going to be put to um put to the test today (laughs) (laughs) depending on your audience of course i mean you know all three of them right (laughs) Anyway, at least we went for straight talking. That's true. And um, uh, yeah, St. Margaret's Bay, although when we do go home now, um, my parents and my husband's parents, we're not related. We looked into that, but they're both from, my mom's family are both from from Cape Breton. So when we go home now, we go home to Cape Breton. But yeah, we both grew up outside of Halifax. Kate, we're so thrilled you uh, agreed to uh, talk with us today. So, and we understand you've prepared some super helpful information about streamlining the use of technology to help faculty improve like their productivity with, um, with teaching and remote teaching. So listen, anything that can help is greatly appreciated by faculty <laughs> in these crazy times. But before we jump into that, um, would you mind taking a few minutes to walk us through the journey that led you to Georgian? And, you know, your current role uh, with the Center for Teaching and Learning. And maybe you could also share some of your educational ventures, which was earning your master's in educational technology through UBC while working, mm-hmm. momming, mm-hmm. living, mm-hmm. and completing your degree completely online. Yep. So it reminds us, you know, when we think about what faculty you're having to deal with right now I, and through the pandemic, 
I think about, you know, what you have been experiencing for at least the last couple of years. So wondering if you had to add in some advice or insight that you'd like to share as well. Okay. Um, my journey, how far back <laughs> am I going? So, I mean, you know, Kim, you said I grew up with uh, musical parents. My, my parents are, um, they were working musicians. So I started working when I was I don't know, two, four. Um, I think one of the things that has helped with that is watching things, watching tech completely go to um, in the moment in front of an audience of, you know, a thousand people and standing there on stage and smiling awkwardly and just wishing that something would come and swallow you up. This is why I feel for teachers who are like doing a test or doing like a live thing. It's also why I'm probably less afraid than other people to get up and and make a complete fool out of myself only because I have a lot of experience having done that and then just having to come out the other side. I guess that's tip number one before we even get there is don't be afraid to look like an idiot. Others have gone before you and (laughs) others will come after you. And really that's that's the biggest part of my journey here, Kelly, is, is being an idiot and um so okay so go as a working musician i was doing that and so then finally um you know i would hear about people who had like regular jobs and regular lives i I didn't know about a sick day until i was 24 which i thought was like oh my god you're sick and you get paid this is like get me into this this is brilliant so basically you know like when you're gigging you're working um you know in bands and you're gigging all the time and it's weekends and, and you don't really have a lot of days you're dependent on what's coming in that weekend or that day or um, basically I decided that I wanted, I, I don't like the starving part of the starving artist bit. So I decided that I would get a day job. What do you do with a BA? I decided that I would get my self-test. So basically I was uh, teaching English as a second language to um, adult learners. I did the CELTA again while I was gigging. And so all of my experience with teaching, which would have started in uh, 2008, 2009, has been purely international students. So that was my, that was kind of my, the start of that. So I worked for a bunch of different spots. Um, this company called CLLC, that's Canadian, it's private. And then I went to University of Manitoba. So I was teaching there as contract faculty. Um, then my husband and I got out of Winnipeg. We went to Toronto. I went back to the CLLC company. Then I got pregnant, decided we got to get out of the city. And so we came up here. I did a stint at Lakehead for a bit. And then the EAP lab technologist job came up and so kareen whitney um also a musician um kind of hired me and then then i got into this job with cetel when this came up i taught a couple of courses in the eap program and so i think that most of the thing that i'm going to talk about is basically uh all this streamlining stuff comes from um yeah my own thing where I was working full-time. I was doing this uh, condensed course that I was teaching. And as Kelly mentioned, I was doing my master's. So that was two courses at the same time. Um, All through UBC, the Master's of Educational Technology program. For those of us who love online learning, um, that was great because if you've got that many things to squeeze into a day, you don't really have time to be going and sitting in lectures. You need things to be asynchronous. We had students from all over the world. One of my group projects, uh, we had a student from... Taiwan. We had a student uh, in South Africa. We had someone in London, me, and then a guy in Calgary. So we were working across all of those time zones for one project and, and just kind of sorted things out and figured it out. And it was, it was kind of awesome. Like, I, I, I don't know. I was happy to be an online learner. I, I love online learning. I like online courses. I like playing and messing around with tech. And I, but I get the, the busyness 
of it. I get the overwhelming part of it. And I get the feeling of being absolutely stuck on one thing for half an hour and trying to pull your hair out and thinking like, this is going to, I'm going to lose my absolute mind. And then, you know, someone goes, no, the button's over there. And you think, oh, if I'd had that information. (laughs) 96 seconds ago, <laughs> minutes, depending on how long it's going. So I, I, I don't know. That, that's a, a long and long and winding road. So Kate, I had a very similar experience with my master's degree and uh, it was completely online and probably for the same reasons as you mentioned, um, the busyness of life, uh, there was no way I could actually go and sit my, my butt in a classroom because I needed to have the flexibility of a, an online environment. And I too had the opportunity to experience sharing that learning space with people from around the world. And I thought, wow, where else could I go to learn uh, and be with people from around the world? So I was uh, quite impressed. So I think also it gives us a little bit of empathy, maybe, I don't know if or something, I don't know if that's the right word, for the learners right now as well in terms of learning in this remote world in that, you know, again, we have busy lives and we know our students are, you know, they're struggling. You know, now there's some different things going on in the world. We have a a pandemic. um, And so we're all sort of struggling with some different challenges. But I think we can embrace it, I guess, as well. So Kim and I have talked a lot about, you know, some people have really loved remote learning. Some people have just hated it. You know, I think this there's a lot of opportunity for sure. Yeah, I feel like in a lot of ways, as much as there's cool stuff going on, a lot of online learning's gotten a bad rap. And that that hurts me because I, I, I do love it. it. It is my it's how I, I, I would prefer it. I would still choose to do things that way. Yeah. I completely agree, Kate. I also did my master's completely online as well. And I think that with any change, it's an adjustment and it takes a little while and it can be challenging and it goes back to the whole like bending without breaking thing. I think we're all creatures of habit when it comes to everything. But I think learning in particular, we're set up for a specific style of learning in a way that feels comfortable because it's safe and because we've always done it. And I think that for a lot of people, myself included, moving from a traditional classroom where there is an instructor present and available for questions and that open feedback loop and all of the parts of teaching and learning that we've become so comfortable with, when you get into a learning environment and you open a class for the first time, I think it can be that like the bit of a pit in your stomach of how do I do this? What what do I have to do? Where do I start? How do I do any of these things? And I think that that can be a really overwhelming thing. So I think you bring up a really great point, which is a lot of things that are new feel scary and feel like they might not work for us. But sometimes you just have to give it a bit of a chance. You need to ride the wave for a little while and you need to say, I'm going to give this a real shot and I'm going to go into it with a positive attitude and see if it'll work for me. And so I think that's a really important point that you bring up is that it was uncomfortable at first, but many of us find our stride and actually find it to be a quite enjoyable learning experience. And simultaneously for us, I think for all three of us, probably the only possible learning experience available to us at those times in our lives. Yeah. And I think it, it shows up in different ways too. One of the things that I used to love when I was in university in a regular old face-to-face environment, I loved going into a lecture and just sitting and just having someone present and not having to necessarily interact with students, but just sitting there taking notes and having the professor, the instructor um, speaking. And I wasn't collaborating. It wasn't this crazy organized, you know, here now talk to this person, now do this. I, I did love to just 
sit and listen. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we were talking about in, in the masters was where's the space for silence online? So like, how do you know if someone's not interacting with something all of the time, how do you know um, what a student's doing? And should you automatically assume that that student is disengaged? Because, you know, if it's someone like me, all the time you would take things offline and you'd sit. Like, I I like to be just me in the content and, you know, taking my own notes. But obviously that's invisible to the instructor because they're not over my shoulder looking at me taking notes. So I think that's another thing is that a lot of people are making all these assumptions about what's happening Mm -hmm. um, online. To that end, one of the things that we were all guilty for um, in the master's when we were creating or designing learning environments, we all said that we were getting too much and then we all gave too much. So when we were, we were saying that, you know, there are all these things that we have to do. We're so busy. Learning online is harder than it is learning in person because I'm expected to do all these things because you don't have that three-hour block where just showing up and sitting. An instructor believes like, okay, they're there. They're part of this experience. So because of that, you know, you, you're, you're assigning work and all these kind of like accountability tasks to make sure that your students are showing up and you feel like, but I, but I am still showing up. Like I'm, t- I am, I'm looking at all that content. I'm doing all of that. Um, it's just that you're not there to witness it. So one of the things that we talked about for sure was, uh, was that space for silence. And the other thing that um, some of the instructors were um, right into, which was neat, was called uh, soul. I think it was slow online ubiquitous learning. Basically they were saying like, take a breath. So they would say Mondays and Tuesdays are your days off. You're not allowed to post. You're not allowed to interact. You're not allowed to do anything because we know how kind of omnipresent all of this can be. And there's just never really a time to shut it off. There's a notification going off here. There's a thing there. And you lose all of those boundaries between I'm now sitting in a classroom and there's nothing else expected of me right now. Nobody's like, you know, everything has become so intertwined that I think that Mm -hmm. that chance for silence and like explicit pauses and not over over prescribing what the learning experience should be is probably something that could take the pressure off a lot of people. And it definitely did for us when when those professors made that made those things explicit, because otherwise you feel like, you know, I have to be on all the time. And and obviously that's Mm going to burn people out. So I think that's uh, fascinating uh, because I recently just had a conversation about introverts and extroverts and myself being um, an introvert and maybe even sometimes an extreme introvert, how I show up into the classroom is very different than somebody who shows up as, who is an extrovert who shows up into the classroom. And so in a remote world, you know, we are as faculty craving that feedback from students because we can Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, for face-to-face, we see that, right? We can see, you know, the head down at the back of the class, or we can see at least somebody making eye contact with us or what have you. So that's, you know, helpful. But when we're in the remote world, where sometimes people are not, you know, turning their cameras on, there's some frustration with that. And, you know, it's how do you, how do you build that? Um, The other thing that was really interesting about that conversation in terms of introvert and extrovert was introverts will gain their energy, or they will refuel by the silence. Right. They need that reflection. Whereas extroverts, they will refuel or they'll process by talking it out. So mm-hmm. I just need to talk about it. I just need to talk about it. So as an introvert myself, you know, to put me into a group space and say, okay, talk it out. And I'm like, in my mind, give me a minute. Thinking, give me a minute. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas the extrovert is like, why isn't she talking? Why is she not talking? Let's go. Come on. Let's go. Let's get this done. Mm-hmm. Um, so one thing I recently heard, which, you know, I'm just completely fascinated by this conversation, is that they actually put 
their students into groups individually and they would give them, you know, whatever that looked like, five minutes to just quietly gather your thoughts, write whatever you need to write or organize whatever you need to organize. And then I'll put you into your larger groups. Now, what they did was they purposely put them in their own rooms by themselves. um, And so that you only saw like yourself or whatever. And that was purposeful for that reason as well, to give space, as you mentioned, for the silence and to allow for those different personalities to get what they needed out of the class. So that's yep. pretty, that's fascinating. We had a giant, mm-hmm. um, we had a giant conversation about it. And then it showed up in, I think it was maybe my uh, culture and communication and online basis, something. I can't remember what the name of the course was, but basically what they did at one point was they gave everyone um, a choice. So there was a discussion board and that was, you know, if anyone wanted to be part of the discussion board, they could do that. But they also gave students um, this logbook action. So it was like, at that point, um, as a student, I was still on Blackboard. So it was like a journal versus a discussion board. And so you were able to submit to this assignment um, by basically um, reflect or writing your reflections in a, in a journal, as opposed to being part of the discussion board. So for me, again, that was huge. Yeah. When you are working full time and you've got a three-year-old and, you know, it, it, you might find time at two o'clock in the morning to get all of your thoughts down in one solid stream and not be waiting on, on the other part of it. So that idea of having choice and thinking about that, that was, that was a big deal. As, as, a, as a learner. Yeah, I like that for so many different reasons. We've talked a lot about kind of purpose, autonomy, choice in adult learning and the importance of, of providing learners some agency and inviting them to take some agency in the learning experience. I think that's huge. So which method of meeting the learning outcomes works for them, I think is wonderful. This also kind of sparks the idea of like building on what you're saying, sparks the idea of um, asking students what engagement looks like to them right. in a classroom. Um, because I think we've heard so much in uh, drop-in sessions, in webinars, in many of the interactions that we've had with faculty. I don't know what to do when students aren't logging in. And right. we have the benefit of checking in Blackboard to see when people have actually logged in. But beyond logging in, there are some limitations as to how we can track how they move through the course. And we've talked about the importance of setting up our courses in a way that is basically a nonlinear story and that allows students to navigate courses like a website. So today Mm -hmm. I feel like going in and doing my reading and then tomorrow I'm going to do my journal as opposed to being too overly prescriptive of how they're going to navigate the course content. Um, But again, sometimes it's like I said, it's like the Bueller, Bueller. Like if you're putting stuff up and you don't have people asking questions, you don't have people engaging on discussion boards the way you'd hoped, then it's like, well, am I failing as an instructor? It's difficult not to bring that what appears to be failure back as a reflection on our own teaching practice. And perhaps a way to avoid that would be to say, what does engagement look and feel like to you? And invite maybe in that, um, we've talked about this in humanizing, but in that survey, like a week one survey. So this is what engagement typically looks like in a face-to-face class. What does it look like for you in a remote? learning class and then give students the opportunity to share that and then that way you don't feel like they're disengaged and they can engage in a way that works for them so it could be a win-win for everybody sure and i i I would definitely in in one of the learning analytics courses that i was in we were talking about those those tracking mechanisms in blackboard and i think that it would be a giant um well first okay I'll leave my opinion out of it. It would certainly take a lot of time 
to go mm-hmm. in and be looking at where people are clicking, what day they're clicking, what time they're clicking. Um, the version of Blackboard and analytics that we have is uh, not the super big fancy one. And I think that I've, I've worked with people who have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what students are doing um, by tracking clicks. Now, the reason that I caution people against taking too much out of this, you know, say you click on something and then you're like, oh, right, no, I have to cancel that dentist appointment. So I'm just going to open up another window. I'm going to go over here. I'm going to cancel that appointment and then I'm going to come back. And maybe they forgot that they had that other tab open. So it looks like they've had this thing open for like six hours or for 12 hours when really they've mm-hmm. forgotten about it, but it's still open on their computer. And so I think a lot of people try to try to get in there looking for um, evidence of that engagement and it's not necessarily indicative of what they've actually done and Mm -hmm. you spend a whole lot of time chasing after something that's not giving you the answers that you're actually looking for right so just like so many things we do in teaching it's more complex than just the numbers or the data there's so much more going on there when i think about um teaching right there are so many things that as Kim said, it's, it's complex. There's so many things that we have to juggle, so many things that we, yeah. you know, have to do. We've added, you know, I, I'm, it's not even really one layer. I think it's like a billion <laughs> layers related to the <laughs> pandemic yeah. um, of what we are now having to do. And of course, there's a steep learning curve with a lot of the skill development that has been going on. And faculty have completely risen to the challenge of, of everything that has been asked of them to do. What I'm wondering is, is there some ideas that you could share that would help faculty so that maybe they don't have to monitor the clicks, for example, <laughs> that there's something that's easier to do or can save you time from your right side so that the left side, you could spend more time, you know, in fill in the blanks, doing whatever. You could be doing more around community building or you could be more working on your group work or, you know, whatever it is that faculty would like to work more at. So, any advice or any tips that you might have? Funny, you should ask that, Kelly Fox. I have <laughs> five tips for streamlining your online teaching at Georgian with Georgian Tech. And I actually have notes <laughs> right here in front of me, which I'm sure that we will share afterwards. Ask following this commercial break. No, no, no. There's no money. There's no money here. And we've got three listeners. Never mind. Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, again, um, I'm I'm coming at this not from a um, here's a new tech tool you should try. Um, like I'm coming at this from I was losing my own mind with you know the the masters the, teaching this one condensed course doing my forty hour a week job. The first thing. Um, tip number one, use announcements and email automatic replies. So again, individual emails are time consuming. And I think that what everybody does is they see something come into their inbox and it feels just like a student coming up to you after class and saying, I need to do this. Um, but you can have a conversation that it might be 30 seconds or someone else who's also in the line coming up to talk to you. You can say, oh, no, this is due on Thursday and bing, bang, boom, you're you're done. And so what you're kind of used to, um, you're, you're trying to recreate it, but it takes up so much time writing these emails. And then people think, OK, well, I'll just copy and paste and I'll copy and paste those in. Well, that still is going to take you a lot of time. So the idea is use announcements um, as often as you can and set those email automatic replies and say, like, I'm not here. If it's something that, you know, um, say it's a weekend and you know something's coming up, um, you can even put in your automatic reply. If you're having trouble submitting your assignment, 
we will deal with this on Monday morning when I'm back on the email. So at least it gives people a chance to understand that, you know, you're not going to be emailing them at, you know, 1215 um, Sunday night, Monday morning and saying like, okay, can you convert your file to this format, whatever, because obviously that's not that's just not going to happen. So the ideas are, yep, to set boundaries because your students also need those boundaries. So Kelly very kindly reminded me that Amy had a great idea when we were doing water and it builds on what you're talking about. So the idea of streamlining your communication and automatic replies and announcements. Amy had a wonderful idea in water to set up a section called asked and answered. So what we did was when there were questions that were coming up repeatedly, we would put the answer into asked and answered or pretty much any question that would, ask, would be asked. If we did a small screencast for it or if we wrote out a typed answer, um, we would put the answer and the question in this folder. And then it's a place for people. It's kind of like a frequently asked questions section, but for Blackboard. Um, and we found that was a huge time saver because people were really great. And granted, this was faculty, but people were really mm-hmm. great at going to that folder and looking there before they asked. And then sometimes it would be like, oh, that's not exactly what I asked, but this still is enough of an answer that it answers my question. Um, so just another strategy to add on to those two great ones that you provided too. Tip number two, get as much stuff off your personal computer and get it in the cloud. This is huge. I hear people talking about like my computer died and everything died with it. Um, that can happen. That, that can absolutely happen. The idea is that if you can have stuff that's not on a single device or not on a USB stick or not on something that is going to die, it will die. It has, it has a shelf life. It's going to go away. Wonderful thing about the cloud is that's being, you know, expanded, regenerated all of the time. So, like, for example, we all have OneDrive. So if you it, take all of your PowerPoints, get them on OneDrive. If you make an update in that PowerPoint, then that will show up in any of the links that you've provided on Blackboard. So you don't have to go, okay, now I have to download it. I have to change this. I'm going to upload the new one. Um, it makes things uh, quicker. There's also no worries that things are stuck in an old Blackboard shell. Um, so you have access to these things. You can use them across multiple courses. You can share them with other instructors. Um, yeah, you're not working with um, things that are locked in one position or on one device. So I know that there are people who are nervous about the cloud. They think the cloud sounds strange. They don't understand what it is. It basically doesn't matter. It's like your storage unit in the sky um, and it is safe and secure. And so yeah, get as much stuff as you can off your personal computer, get it in the cloud. Um, So number three, do all your grading in line and use weighted totals. Um, If you have stuff on Excel, if you have stuff in Word, if you have like, you know, all due respect, those things can have user error. Um, And so, most of the time when people say, okay, well, there's an issue with Blackboard, it's the issue with the way that Blackboard is set up. Blackboard's pretty good at math because it doesn't know any different. Um, so all of your grading in line and using weighted totals also means that students can see those updates and feedback. Um, you don't need to organize all of the downloads because you're not bringing everything that students have done down onto your computer. Um, use audio feedback in Blackboard. So there is a little button with a microphone. So if you are tired of typing, if you're tired of doing all the stuff, then you can throw um, throw some audio feedback onto an assignment and away you go. So there's one, two, and three finished. Um, the next thing that helped me so much, and I know this is controversial, I'm throwing it out there, um, 
Rubrics, Rubrics, Rubrics is the name of this tip. Um, the reason that I love this, again, everything's running around and it's absolutely insane. And I'm marking discussion boards, I'm marking things, I'm clicking buttons because everything is there in line. And then I click these buttons on the rubric, I press submit, it automatically feeds into the grade center and the weighted total. Um, that way you also have less need for feedback because it's in the rubric. So students can refer to that. Also, if they can see it before the assignment is due, they're better able to structure, um, you know, their assignment, what they're going to include in their assignment and how they're going to go through it because they know a little bit more about how it's being graded. And if they want a certain grade or score, then these are the things that I'm going to be um, looking for. Or So it, it makes things a lot clearer. Um, it's, you know, the, uh, the grading process is more transparent. Um, so it also just, makes things um, easier for you and your student, you know, how, how you're grading these assignments and what you're doing, and easier for you when you're grading in line and using those rubrics. I would say, Kate, rubrics are not controversial. I think oh. that they, there's <laughs> lots of literature and research to support rubrics. I think we'll find students coming through the system from the K-12 system are very much used to rubrics. And so, you know, supporting the student learning and supporting kind of what they're familiar with is very important as well. But myself experiencing the use of rubrics when you're um, evaluating an assignment from a group or, or uh, a student is very helpful because it also keeps yourself organized as a faculty. Mm -hmm. um, that also that opportunity to provide your specific feedback to that student related to their assignment, like you mentioned, either like a uh, voice or, you know, your inline text or whatever it looks like, but you can be very specific with that particular feedback, which is also helpful. So, Excellent advice. I mean, rubrics, if you haven't had a chance to check them out on Blackboard, is uh, like a game changer to me. Um, the other thing that I think is worth mentioning, too, is the fact that you can continue to use the same rubrics or you can copy them and adapt them. So if you put a lot of time into creating a rubric and to filling out all of the columns and rows and putting detailed information in there, if you have another assignment that, is, say, is like a, a reflective piece in a different course that uses similar marking criteria or is meeting similar outcomes, you can copy and use that rubric in a different course and then just adapt it slightly. Um, the other thing that I want to mention too, to just to add on to what you've said about rubrics is it can be really helpful for appeals as well. Yeah. Um, so as opposed to saying like, oh, this paper was an 80 paper because I'm an expert in my field and I, I believe that this is an 80. Um, it's definitely helpful to be able to say, here's the marking criteria. Here's each of the <laughs> different um, rows and how a student achieves like a 10 out of 10 or an 8 out of 10 or a 6 out of 10. Um, and so it can be helpful to explain uh, the grading breakdown to students, but also helpful in an appeal situation as well. 100%. The other awesome thing about that is that if you've got someone who's also teaching, that you can share rubrics. So if, if you, you know, the, the good thing about that is that you can then have consistency across, you know, if, if you're mm -hmm. teaching a section and someone else is teaching a section, you say, do you have a rubric? Yeah, man, like I, I've got this, like I'll, I'll export it and you can use it. And then mm -hmm. away you go, you can adapt it however you might want to, but you also have an idea about how someone else is grading things and looking at things. So the, it, it smooths things, uh, it speeds the process up for sure. And, mm -hmm. and it's not as much um, work ahead as, as you would think. I think, I think the, the minimal work ahead is worth it on the other end when you're actually using it and doing all of this in Blackboard because it does make things a lot 
faster. Right. And we've talked in previous sessions, I believe, and we certainly talk about it a lot in the Center for Teaching and Learning is the idea of kind of a lot of our work in a term, particularly in a, mo- in a remote learning environment, is very front loaded. The idea of kind of the proactive strategies that save us the time in the reactive fixes later. So whether it's taking the time to build community, whether it's um, filling out detailed rubrics, whether it's um, setting up um you know, your weeks ahead of time, however much you're able to do. It's basically just the idea of the more you can do at the start of the course and the better accustomed you can get students to how the term will flow, how the work is typically assessed to the structure of the course and the grading and all that stuff, I think the better. And again, that's that's a proactive fix as opposed to reactive reactions later. Well, it's funny you should mention that because my last my last tip for streamlining your online teaching at Georgian with Georgian Tech is use pools of questions for your tests. Because when you use those pools, Blackboard is doing the randomization of, of grabbing those questions and making a small little tiny quiz out of it. So let's say you've got 20 questions in a pool and each student is answering one. The likelihood that they're each going to get the same question is fairly minimal. Um, here's the the brilliant part was that later on when I was doing a a midterm or if I was doing a final, I could just use all of those pools and then make the questions, um, give them more questions on the exam. So, I mean, they might see a question that they've already answered. Well, all right, like fair enough. So basically you can reuse those pools in different ways. So that'll save you a lot of time um, so that by the time you get to a higher stakes thing, you can kind of yeah, put those all together and use that as a test. Your students are used to that. Uh, the testing protocol, where do they have to be sitting? What kind of a device should they be on? Um, so that hopefully you're not getting to the point where, you know, you've released something for a midterm and everyone's going like, oh my God, like I didn't log in on time or this setting was wrong or, you know, I mean, that is, that's the worst. And again, I used to, I used to test 220 students every two weeks. So I've, I've run into most of the situations that you can, including power outages and <laughs> fire drills and like all of those things that, that are completely out of your control. Um, so I think doing more as opposed to doing less kind of gets everyone used to the testing experience and, you know, brings down the anxiety, lets people figure out how they're going to, you know, set themselves up for those tests and quizzes and saves you time in, in the long run. And I think it just makes good uh, pedagogical sense. Like if you think about how you want to sort of uh, design a class or design a course, one of the best things you can do is practice and repetition. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if students have the chance to to practice, 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 and they've seen the question before, it seems to me that some people seem to think that's a bad thing, but it is a really it's a good pedagogical practice to allow the students to take the time to learn, repeat, repeat practice and repeat. So that's a great way Mm -hmm. to do that is having a pool of questions that students may have seen and they may see again as well. Yeah. And I think when you think about teaching across multiple terms again, so for me coming from liberal arts and teaching communication essentials, usually multiple sections a term and every single term, we have so many sections of them across the college. I think, again, it's one of those things that seems like a lot of work to create a pool of questions. But if you have a great pool and every term you're adding more questions to that pool, it means that instead of having 
to create a new midterm and a new final every term in hopes of for academic integrity reasons and in hopes that if someone's roommate took this last term, they're not saying, oh, well, here's all the questions from it. Um, the larger the pools are and the more you continue contributing to them, the easier it is for you in the multiple reiterations of these courses in coming terms as well. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, too, about even like the creation of those pools. And again, in a time that was that was nuts for me, a, a lot of those questions would be, you know, done on a, say, a Friday afternoon after we finished the week of things. And I'd, I'd be kind of doing that as we were going through the week, you know, like, OK, this is what we were talking about this week and like might even like, you know, circle things so that I had an idea of what was going to happen again. And in EAP, it was fairly infrequent that we could reuse the same things. I mean, textbooks would obviously remain the same, but most of the tests, um, most of the things we would, they, they'd be newly generated every time. So, I mean, don't let the, um, don't let the tech hold you back on that one. Um, because I don't know, it's, it's stuff you'd be doing in your, in your face to face, you know, normal classes anyway, you know, like mm-hmm. just, yeah. Um, I, I know that we have to go, Kelly. I, I know. I'm aware. I, I, I know you're going to bring out the hook soon and just pull me right off. Um, but my one little bonus tip is... Never um, Kate. There's no hook for you. <laughs> my one little bonus tip is, um, is group work and study buddies. And this, again, comes back to the whole when I was learning, um, when I was there as a learner and then also as a teacher, I did a lot of I did a lot of using um, Blackboard's randomized uh, groups. So, as you know, students would email me and say, who's in my group? And I say, I don't know. Look at the list. Like, I, I don't know either. This is this is Blackboard randomized. So they're having to do a little searching and getting to know their classmates and, and you know, using the resources they have to find those students. Um, they're not signing up with people that they already know. Or if they do, there you go. Like, it's, it's a happy coincidence. Um, but those random groups I used a lot um, and the group assignments. So then, you know, if you're marking a group assignment with a rubric, that's one thing that you're doing. Everyone can see the feedback straight into the grade center. Away you go. Um, the study buddy thing was something that as a learner, they would set us up with at the very beginning of the semester. And there wasn't anything that you had to do or not do with this person. It was just somebody to bounce ideas off of um, and to check in on things like, okay, like, do you know what I'm supposed to do for this assignment? Or what are you doing for this thing? And and that, again, was a, was a random assignment that people would say at the beginning or the instructor would say at the beginning and, and say, this person is there. Um, can interact however you want. I'm not checking in. You don't have anything that you need to do, but, um, you know, and in some cases that works really well and in other cases it didn't, but it's one more thing. It's one more place for people to go to have those answers and, and get them kind of again, out of your inbox. I think you've provided us with a ton of really helpful, (laughs) practical, application-worthy information. That's been kind of one of our unofficial goals, something that we've, uh, we, it didn't, it wasn't one of the goals that we set out to do, but it's something that we've definitely found ourselves doing across every episode is providing some information, but then also having at least one takeaway that people can say like, I'm going to try that. I'm going to take that piece of information. I'm going to try it. You've given us like 10 great things that people can try. So that's fantastic. I I really appreciate the best one was the being an idiot. That is the one that I feel like. <laughs> Let's really not underestimate be. the Let's power. Let's not underestimate the power no. of being willing to look like an idiot. Okay. Yes. That's for you. 
and the the bravery that it takes for you to say that because we all feel like an idiot sometimes in education and it's that imposter syndrome and it's the I don't want to embarrass myself in, in front of 40 people so yes you're absolutely right that is a great piece of information and it's super helpful and I think it brings us back to that whole idea of we're all in this together on that. you should do a podcast on like details most embarrassing teaching moments that's the next episode oh totally I guys should do that's a whole show, man. That right? is a whole show. Let's add that to the list, Kelly. Absolutely. That could be our, yeah. our like 20th episode could be like your, <laughs> our teaching bloopers or blunders. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I Absolutely. think maybe even Kim and I have enough with the yes. podcast alone. <laughs> yes. We could probably do a whole mm-hmm. episode just on that. Yes, it's absolutely. Very true. Very true. I bet you're well, right. Well, Kate. We thank you so much for your time and your willingness to share your expertise and your knowledge and your wonderful sense of humor with us. We're so blessed to have you here with us today and to work as close with you as we do. You're a barrel of laughs and so much fun and we just adore you. So can't thank you enough for being here. Thanks, Kate. And uh, we're giving you a big virtual hug. Oh, yes. I'm so glad it's virtual. Because <laughs> we know you love them so much. Your favorite. Let's I'm end also this with a glad, group hug. Listen, Kelly, you you don't have to bleep anything out. I even self-bleep. <laughs> she comes you prepared. Did great. We didn't need a hook and we didn't need no. to self-bleep. And yeah. we didn't need the hug. Boom. <laughs> the trifecta. Yeah. <laughs> And on that note, thank you guys both so much for today. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Kate. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Bye.